Hello, welcome to today's episode of the Culture Hot Pot. Today we'll be speaking with Usha Mayani, who's a great friend whom I've known for, let's say, 10, 15 years. As long as I've known Usha, she's always been in transition. In 2017, she was ranked by El Economista, a magazine, uh, one of the most renowned business magazines in the region. And she was named as one of the 25 most powerful women in Panama. She was president of the Import-Export Association, which is equivalent to the Chamber of Commerce, but for import-export. And in 2018, she did the unthinkable. She walked away from all of that and became a writer amongst many other things. In 2021, Usha collaborated with a group of authors to publish a book, A Different Story, How Six Authors Became Better Writers. Usha, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Christina. First of all, I'd, I'd like to say uh, thank you for having me. For me, it's a great source of pleasure for you know to do this. I actually do find it interesting to do these podcasts. It's a great experience. So I'm super curious. So when I met you, you were this big, powerful businesswoman, right? I'm interested in knowing about your journey. You are a businesswoman, and now you're also a writer. How did that come about? Yeah, that was quite a journey. You know, if, I, if I'm to be honest, I think I've been a writer all my life. The only thing is that I didn't call myself a writer. The transition has been to be able to own it. And so, yes, I was in business and import-export, and I was part of this association that was for import-export, the equivalent of the, of, a chamber, of the Chamber of Commerce, but for import-export for almost 30 years. And um, it was great. But I think, I think all of us as human beings, when we're working or we're living a life, you know, we study things and we do things in our life, but there comes a point, I would say at the age of 40 or 50, you know, in that age bracket, that we start yearning for something more. I've been a writer since I was in high school, I think. I've always loved it. I've always loved the arts. And about at that age, between 40, 50, I started to have a calling. I wanted to really write. And I wanted to do something more fulfilling. And so I just kind of, I think life just took me in that direction. And I just followed like the breadcrumbs. You know, there's always breadcrumbs. And you don't realize what you're doing, but you're just following and next thing I knew, I was collaborating with this book, with this group of authors, and we published this book. Hopefully, I'll be collaborating again with another group of authors to publish another book. I'm also um, working on my own book, and I hope to publish that someday soon. Oh. Yeah, so I'm really excited. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> and by the way, I think we've known each other uh, a lot longer than 10 years, but let's just say 10 years for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not tell people how old we are. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've been exploring the creative side of you for some time. You, you're very musical. And then um, I feel like I've read some of your pieces in the, in the past. And there's some cadence that I think is the essence of you that comes out through music, it comes 
comes through in your writing. Maybe if you'd like to share some of your, yeah, a recent piece maybe sure. with our readers. Sure, that would be, um, yeah, that would be great. I actually, well, like I said, this is my passion. So yeah, I'm going to read your piece if you'll have a little patience with me here. Absolutely. <laughs> so the title of this piece, and I've picked it purposefully because um, it really shows how you can build a character out of nothing, but yet it's not nothing. It's it's your whole experience. It's you as a writer observing people and then pulling from your own life. And then there's a person that just shows up on the page. So the title is called Cedar Fucking Street. I was awakened from my third nap of the day by the sound of snoring. Lack of oxygen, says my doctor. My mouth drops open and the sound from the back of my throat begins. I didn't know I snored until I moved into cedar-assisted living on Cedar Street. When I was young, we called them the cedar old folks. I never thought I would end up here, where the ancient, unwanted, and alone come to be a burden on paid personnel. Nowadays, the politically correct try to make these places look like resorts for the third act of life, as if the life of an old, decrepit body riddled with aches and pains was a play in a theater on Cedar Street. If you ask me, I say third act of life is a silly description invented by people in their 30s who think they will have they have it all figured out. Their 80s will be the new 60s, and that's how they imagine life will be when they get to this to this place, the one for people no one wants on Cedar fucking street. I remember when I was in my 30s, I thought I would be like that song by Rod Stewart, forever young, strong, and in charge of my life and body. But then I would wake up at my usual time, 4 a.m. My beauty regime required an early start. I'd like to look put together for when I dropped off my son at school. I don't recall the name of the school, but I remember it was located somewhere in the San Fernando Valley of California. While the other mothers showed up in sweats and sunglasses to hide the dark circles under their eyes, I worked hard to look my best. I dressed in cute slippers with nails painted in the fashion color of the season. My honey-colored eyes with gray eyeshadow, black eyeliner, and mascara were opened up for the world to see every day on the dot at 5.30 a.m. My hair blow-dried, with each strand of hair held in place by L'Oreal Professional Spray for extra body and volume. As a hairstylist whose specialty was color, my light brown hair was warm, honey-colored highlights was a must. I was a poster on legs for the service I provided to my clients. Each morning I walked into school, my arms wrapped around my five-year-old son, Stevie, his hair a mass of black curls with strands of golden highlights. I was the envy of all mothers. Of course, they didn't know the effort it took to show up all dressed up, cool as a cucumber. No siree, Bob, they did not. I was a single mother. I did the best I could. Until my father kicked the bucket, of course. That's when I became a long-overdue trust fund baby. My father lived to the ripe old age of 92. He spent the last 12 years of his life in the hellhole on Cedar Street, the one I thought I would never see, but here I am, followed in my father's footsteps all the way to the lack of oxygen in my sleep. I imagine my Stevie's bald by now. The last time I saw him, his hair was thin, the top of his head sunburned. I told him to wear a cap, but kids don't listen to their parents anymore. Now my day revolves around sleep. 
after each meal, a nap, a little TV in the evening, my body unable to move without help, dependent on strangers, adult diapers. I often think of the book I wrote in my late 50s, the one that was almost the one that almost didn't get published. Letters to Emily Jane Bronte. Maybe people here don't even know I'm a published author. Sometimes I think of Emily as I lie in bed waiting to be turned. If I could tell her one thing, I would say life is never easy for women. It wasn't only her time or my mother's time that was difficult. It's every generation of the female lineage. I wonder what she would think about living long enough to be placed in a retirement home when by the age of 30, Emily was already dead. Wow. Beautiful. This character, I don't know what her name is, I can almost feel I know her throughout her life as if I know her intimate personality since she was young until now at her ripe old age. What's your inspiration for creating this character? Well, you know, I think that as a writer, we observe life in detail. And um, the inspiration always comes from our own life, you know? And what we observe are the little bits and pieces that we can add on. There's always a piece of the writer, a part of the writer. You dig in and there's a part of the writer that's all over the page, you know? And so inspiration is my own life and or maybe even my parents because uh, they lived, you know, the old age. My mother died at 80. Uh, my mother, my father died at 92. So I saw the whole trajectory of getting old. And then also now I'm in my 50s, so I know where I'm headed, right? So that's, that was the inspiration, my own life. I think it's, you have a very deep, I think you're a great observer then, deep understanding of human psychology, you know, what goes on inside each one of us. So, yeah, you're talking, you talked about your, your parents a little bit. You're Indian Panamanian, right? Um, tell us about, you know, what's like growing up as Indian Panamanian in a school that was an American, American military school, right? Uh -huh. How was that experience growing up within yeah. all of these yeah. cultural mixes and what have you observed yeah. in life, in people? Right, right. Yeah, as a, as a very good observer. <laughs> How was that yeah. like? Well, you know, my parents were immigrants, so they came from India, and I was born in Panama. In fact, my mother came to Panama while she was pregnant with me. She was six months pregnant, so I almost was born in India. But I was born in Panama, and at that time, there was a huge U.S. presence. We called it the Canal Zone because it was tied to the Panama Canal. And so it was a, it was a U.S enclave like they were separate from Panama and so we uh, went to school in the American school system and I went to school in the American school system and it was totally American like you would not even know you were in a foreign country you really felt like you were in the United States and so um, so at home I was I had my Indian upbringing and then I went to school which is where a huge part of my day and my life was spent I was surrounded and immersed in the, in the American culture. 
And the Panama sign was at that time minimal for me. So I, I didn't really realize what it was to be Panamanian when I was young. It was Indian at home and it was the American environment, right? And I managed to, I, I managed to merge them in a way that they had a, like a symbiotic relationship. When I was in school, I was American. But from what I understand, my teachers, I still keep in touch with them. They all say that they all knew that the Mayani kids were different, not because they were Indian, but there was a sense, there was an ethic that we all had. And they knew it came from our home. Right. And that was the Indian ethic. Right. So, but then when we went home, we brought a little bit of the American into the home. Uh-huh. So, and then the Panamanian side came afterwards when I, finished college, I came back from the States and I started working. That's when I really immersed myself in what it meant to be Panamanian. And that was at the age, you know, in my early 20s. So that was quite an experience. It was not an easy transition to become, to own up to where I was born, my citizenship. Right. It was quite difficult. Culture clash. Yes. Which I didn't have with the American and the Indian. Because you were a kid. Because when I you was a kid. Assimilated yes. all that. Yeah. And then. And I didn't see differences, which is, I think, a difference when you're young. Huh. Because if, as, as an older person, you notice the difference. As a kid, I just knew that this is what it was. This is who I am. And this is who I am when I'm at school. You and didn't it's, question it. It I wasn't didn't question weird. it. You know, like a child, you tell them to learn the piano, and the teacher says, do these scales. They never say, how do I do it? They just sit and they do it. But there was no conflict. Hmm. Interesting, because I have a similar experience, different, of course. I mean, child of Chinese immigrants, uh, went to not an American school, but very Americanized uh -huh. school, meaning up until I was age 12, it was run within the American system. Right. So my formative years was very much American. My teachers were American. Um, and yeah, I had that, of course, as a kid, I didn't understand it. It was just natural to me. But at home, I was one person. At school, I was a different person. And out in the street, the, the Panama side of it, I didn't have that much interaction. But when I had, it's another identity. Right. Not only how I behaved towards outside, but also how other people saw me. Right. And then it's all, all those experiences get internalized, mm -hmm. right? So my question is, how has your multicultural experience shaped your worldview and how has that translated into your writing? Right. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I'm, I feel like if I could describe it, I would look at a tree. You know, we see on the outward, we see the trunk of the tree and we see the branches, Right. So when I look at my trunk of the tree, my trunk of the tree is very American, very American. And then the branches are the Panamanian side that, that grew when I, when I came here at the age of, when I came back and I started working and I started really immersing myself in the Panamanian culture. And you see branches, they grow, they trim, they fall off, you know, leaves fall off, but they're there, but they're very thin, but they're a very important part of the tree. The trunk is extremely important. That's the American side of me. But the most important is the roots. And my roots are very Indian. Now, mind you, I, if I go to India, they will look at me as a foreigner. 
and I will never be an Indian from India. But there's so much of my roots that is that is Indian, right? Now, as you see a, a tree gets older, you see the roots go down. But there are moments that certain roots come up and suddenly they're above the soil, right? And that for me is what happens with age. I don't think anybody when I was younger would ever saw the roots in my life. But now I'm in my 50s and suddenly there's certain roots, certain parts of the roots that have, have you know, cut above and have pushed their way into the sunlight. Right. And this is what people perceive. So when they see me, I believe it's like looking at a tree. They see the trunk. I, I speak in English as my first language. That's the language I communicate with. That's the kind of language I write in. And then when I'm speaking to Latin people, you see my branches. I'm Panamanian, born in Panama. That's my citizenship. And then when you look, you look at my roots, you're going to see these gnarled, thick roots coming up. <laughs> and they have pushed their way out. And now this is who I am. Beautifully put. I think you put into words my feelings of how, you know, my experience is, has been totally. What people see is just parts of it. They don't get the whole picture. It's very similar, you know. Uh, my formative years was American, so I speak in English. I feel more comfortable expressing myself, communicating in English. I mean, I'm yeah. bilingual or one bilingual. I know a little bit of Cantonese. And same thing, when I travel, the people that see me, they're like, oh, Asian. Right, and they expect that this Asian would behave a certain way, and this Asian does not behave in any way similar to a regular Asian. Even um, the times I've been to Asia, people treat me strange. And in China, I'm not Chinese. Right. They just one look, and they know I'm not from there. Right. right. But the same what you talked about the roots, I feel so identified because let's say. My name is Christina, and that's the name I go by legally and everywhere. And I, yes, I am Christina. But at home, as I was growing up, my name is not Christina. It's my Chinese name. My parents never called me Christina in my 40-something years of life. To this day, my name is my Chinese name. Right. I hear you. Very strange. But, you know, to the world... I manifest as Christina, but my inside world, I have another name. Your inward, your inner world is, is your roots, I think. Right? I hear you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for, for showing me what I knew all along, but now I see it clearly. Yeah. The roots, so important. Because yeah. that's what sustains us, right? I think that owning all the parts of who we are is the game changer in life. Like I know people, because Panama is a very multicultural, diverse, I mean, we truly are a melting pot. And um, I know that a lot of times people have a lot of conflict internally because there's what the outside world sees, there's what the other world sees, there's what your community sees, and then there's how you feel. But when you own all the parts of yourself, then you you really own who you are and there's a self-confidence. And then, yes, you kind of look and I know, I know there's so many Americans here and because of my skin is brown, 
I know that when they look at me, they speak in Spanish to me. Really? Yeah. And you know what? It doesn't bother me. Yeah. Because I look at them and I just, I speak to them in English if I feel like. Exactly. And the way I see it is, you know, I am more multicultural than anybody I know because I can speak three languages. So, you know, I've been in restaurants where I've overheard conversations and I'm just sitting there as a writer. I'm like fascinated, you know. (laughs) So, so, you know, but but I notice it, but I own who I am. So I don't, nothing bothers me anymore as far as, you know, what people think of me, how they, you know, how they perceive me. Oh, she's Indian. Why does she, you know, she must just speak Spanish or she must just speak English. It turns out that, you know, that's all on the outside. Oh, I find it fun. I, I just, I don't even find it in anything. I just find that most important thing in my life has been to own all the parts of myself. That's my Absolutely. journey. Absolutely. That's my journey. You know, and what other people think, well, that's their, their that's their journey. Exactly. Yeah, You're like, whatever people think, not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> I see that they need, um, you know, we could all use a healthy dose of multicultural understanding. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it gets a point which the outside doesn't matter. When you own all the parts of I yourself, it I doesn't matter. I don't care matter. about the outside at all. Yeah. You know, um, the more complicated you are in the sense of depthness and all these branches that you call them, I find it fascinating. The more I want to know about this person. Right. You know, because I want to dig deeper. Right. Right. I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so well, you asked me a question. How does this? How does? How has this shaped my worldview and my writing? I think everything, who you are, comes out in your writing, whether you're multicultural or not. So, so I just find that perhaps I'm hoping that the reader uh, finds richness in my writing because of that. But then again, that's going to be the right. That's the reader's journey. You know. Yeah, that's one thing um, that I've learned that one can be creating. Let's say it could be a piece of music or a piece of writing, and it's yours until it's released. Yeah. Once it's out there, somebody else reads it, it's theirs. It's not yours anymore. Right. And I find that process, the first time it happened to me, I was very scared because I felt very, let's say, naked. Yeah. Kind of, right? Yes. And then, and I was raised to be very private. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then I'm like, oh gosh, somebody's going to read this. Like, people I don't know is going to read this. And once it's out, a, a dear friend of mine, and he says, whatever it is, be it a business uh, endeavor, be it a piece of art, whatever it is, once it's out there, it's not yours. It no longer belongs to you. And it's somebody else's. And it's a gift. Yeah. And once you gift something, he says, you don't take it back. Yeah, <laughs> you certainly don't. <laughs> or you shouldn't. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So talk about what well, we talked a little bit about childhood and stuff. What's your favorite childhood memory? You know, one of those memories that was, is now part of your roots. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say, um, gosh, I have so many memories. But if I have to pick one, one of the things, I love the holiday season uh, because, and I love the fact that we call it holiday season, but it, even if people say Merry Christmas, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But I love the fact that we say holiday season nowadays because it's so inclusive to everyone. So now I could say happy holidays and you could be celebrating Hanukkah or you could be celebrating, 
you know, Eid for the Muslims, or you could be celebrating, you know, um, Christmas, or you could be celebrating birthdays, whatever it is. And for me, my favorite time of the year has always been that. And notice I'm not Catholic, but when I look at back in my childhood, I used to love Christmas Eve because as kids, we, used, we always put up a Christmas tree. And I always find it funny when people say, but would you celebrate Christmas? I said, no, we celebrate the holiday season. And if the holiday season is, is a tree, then we used to put a tree. And, um, and then the gifts would go underneath the tree. I understood that, that that was for the Catholics, a celebration of the birth of Jesus. But did I, in turn, did I feel that it was the birth of Jesus? No, but we put a tree and it was just the feeling, the happiness, the joy. And as kids, we used to open our gifts at midnight. So did we. So that was very important to me. And again, if you see, that's multicultural. And that's also acceptance of all cultures. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, because I know people will say, oh, I don't celebrate Christmas. But then they gift each other and then they, they will say, but we don't put a tree and we don't put... And I would say, why? is it that important? The spirit is there. The spirit is there. And, and the tree is like a perfect place to put the gifts underneath. So, you know, that's wonderful, right? And it creates this magic for children. And I just love it, you know. I love it. So that that's would be my memory as a child. And, and I find that to be very multicultural because I'm Indian in a home of Indians, not Catholic. And there we were. Christmas tree. Christmas tree. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. That's how how rich our lives can be, right? Yes. And yes. it's nice to be open about different yeah. customs and integrate them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely, lovely. And going in the other direction a little bit, and it's not dark at all. But as I say, you know, um, what people see is the outside and within us. We can be many things, right? And and sometimes conflicting things. Right. What do you think that people misunderstand you the most? Yeah. Or yeah, misjudge you the misjudge most. Misjudge you yes. the most. Yeah. yeah. You know, I am very clear that whatever people see is more about them than about what they see, right? I think we're all very clear about that these days. And what I find is people who know me, they know I have a, I'm very, I'm kind to a fault. I know that. And I, I learned that at home from my parents and my mother, especially. So I'm very kind and I'm very compassionate towards people. And I think a lot of people misjudge that and they think of that as a weakness. They take that for weakness. And what I've learned is that you are your most powerful when you are open to your vulnerabilities. That is my superpower. And people misjudge that because they, coming from their point of view, they think that's weakness. But I have, uh, I have, I have a sense of who I am. And I, am, I know I'm a very powerful person because every time I've been in a powerful position, I've done it brilliantly. Right? Hey, you were named are the most powerful women in the country and in the region. So <laughs> during my time as president of this merchant, this import export association, which is the equivalent of the chamber of commerce, I became the voice of the private sector for the entire country. Absolutely. And that didn't come from being strong 
like, uh, you know, beating people down with my truth. It was from coming from a place of compassion and kindness and really open to my own vulnerability. And so, um, and, and that's, that's where, I think that's where your super, that's where my superpower is. And I would say that's where everybody's superpower is. But, but that's also it's misjudged, right? We see somebody compassionate or kind of, we think they're weak. On the contrary, you know. On the contrary, that's it. Because sometimes, um, sometimes people misrepresent strength with hardness. Yes. And truth is, it's the other way it's around. It's the opposite. It's completely the opposite. The softness, the flexibility is what gives a person resilience. Yes. And also the space to be able to read a situation. Yes. Read the other person. The, you know, the empathy part of it, understanding where the other person is coming from, and then say, hey, let's find this solution instead of beating somebody around with it. Right, right. And there's power. There's more power to the person's able to convince and be, you know, with working in consonance with the other person right. versus making the other person do yeah. it. And, you know, we know this. You can't make anybody do anything. Absolutely. You can, you can think <laughs> you've made the person do something, but you can't make anybody do anything. And they'll make you believe that they did it. Yeah, yeah but it's yeah. not the same. You know, right? I, I always, I, for me, the analogy of water is the perfect thing. The most powerful thing in nature, in my opinion, one of the most powerful things is water. And water is also the softest thing there is. Yet nothing stands in the way of water. Nothing. It's what comes down the mountain. It's what forms the ocean. It's what come, you know makes a river. It clears a path. I mean, if you've ever had water filtration in your house, you know there's nothing that can stop its way, right? Well, and it's the softest. Water finds its way. Yes, and it's soft. In its softness, it finds its way. It finds its way. It always finds its way. Right. Lovely. So... Now that you've got all these, uh, this experience and you're in transition, and I think as human beings, we're always going to be in transition. We're always going to be learning things, experiencing new things, if we let it. If you could go back to your 20-year-old self and give one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, I would, that's not an easy question to answer. But as I think about it, I would have to say, if I could tell my 20-year-old person one piece of advice, I would say, you're going to meet all kinds of people in this world. Do not carry their burden because they have legs, they have arms, and they have their own journey. Your job is to have your experience. And if you can help somebody, you help them. If you do not carry them. Wow. Because you may, you, are, you, are, you may be doing them a disservice. And right. you are definitely doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. Well, I, I, that hit hard. <laughs> In a way that I'm thinking what those words mean to me, even at this age. Like, I know that, you know, and this is also a lesson I've learned. 
But also it's hard because in a way I've been ingrained to not, it's never been put as carry other people, but it's always been like my role in society is to help others, is to consider the other, is to be quote unquote selfless for the greater good or for the good of the family or the community or, you know, people around you. And in a way, that kind of shaped, you know, the experience throughout the first X amount of years of my life to behave in that certain way. And now that you mention it, it put me to thinking how much of that is placed by us, by our community, by our families, by society, by our culture. And as women, we're expected to be caretakers, you know, like that extra caring and extra caring, right? Very interesting. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a quote, and I'm trying to think about the full quote, but it's a it's always affected me because there's many reasons why we we carry other people. It could be our sense of um, you know, it could be our sense of responsibility, but it could also be a sense of undeserving. I'm I'm having a great life and somebody's not. And the person says, oh, but you have it all easy. Then what happens? I feel like, oh, I should carry you. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. So there's all kinds of reasons, right? It could be cultural. It could be uh, deep thing grain. It could be trauma. It could be all kinds of things. There's a quote by Howard Thurman, and it says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that is the core, the, the crux of what I would tell a 20-year-old self. Don't be dragged into, the, into an early death, you know? That sounds terrible. I know, but that's literally, because if your job is to come alive, when you carry people, look how heavy it becomes and look how you sink. Right, right. Yes. So that would be my advice to my 20 Beautiful. Listeners, you hear that? Brilliant advice, I have to say. <laughs> for your 20-year-old self, for your 47-year-old self. Yeah. <laughs> no matter the age. Great advice. Yeah. And you know, we don't ever stop learning. Like um that's life is it is definitely a journey. And that's why I in my bio and whenever people ask me, I'm always saying, I'm in a perpetual state of transition. Because the sooner you own up to that, the easier your life will be because everybody is always in a perpetual state of transition. But those people who don't own it, they get into their 40s and they're like wanting a different career. And then they say, oh, no, but that's what I studied. I mean, look at how painful that is. So be flexible. And part of being flexible is saying, I'm in a perpetual state of transition. Yeah, absolutely. I feel I'm always learning something new, becoming somebody more. Yeah. I won't say else, because I feel like everything I have been, I still am. It's just getting bigger and better yes. and richer. Yes. And it's like the roots, right? You transition into transition. What are you doing? You're going deeper and deeper and deeper into who you really came here to be. Right? Right. And that's why that quote by Howard Thurman affects me so much because you're here to come alive. Yeah. And to be happy. 
Oh my God. What a high note yes. to end this podcast. <laughs> I am so floored by what you're saying. Um, I think I'm going to be writing this high for the rest of the day. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad because, you know, life is like that. I'm happy and, and you're on a high. Now I'm on a high too. And we're going to... Let's ride this yes, high together. Yes, this is a, a wonderful cycle, not a vicious cycle. It's a wonderful cycle. And it's just going up and up every time, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, so, well, Usha, where can our listeners find you? Well, um, let me see. I'm on Facebook, and it's under Usha Mayani. And I'm also on Instagram, The Usha Mayani. And if you look up on Amazon, uh, A Different Story, How Six Authors Became Good Writers, uh, it's sold on Amazon. And um, those are the places you can find me. Fantastic. And may I say that you will join us for another episode sometime in the near future? Absolutely. Yes. Yay. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. 